Um, okay, we're going to jump into Ephesians uh, chapter 3. Um, we're putting a bow on Ephesians 1 through 3. Um, and it's going to be finishing out this first half of this letter before we get into some of the practicals. The first half, Ephesians 1 through 3, is about what we would call orthodoxy. It's about the understanding of kind of what we believe. And then the latter half is orthopraxy. How does that actually inform how we live? And so we're about to enter into the shift, the transition from one half to the other. Um, what we see is that Paul is, is writing to a church that he loved in Ephesus. They want us to forget that as we navigate through this letter, that, that he had a deep affection for the people in Ephesus. And he's writing in prison, and he had spent multiple years with this church there. And he's come out on the other side, and now he's writing them this letter because of this affection that he had for the people that are there. Um, and we know that this church was dealing with all challenges and temptations, all kinds of challenges and temptations. You know, every generation deals with the reality that it's hard to follow Jesus. And in AD 55, it was hard to follow Jesus. In 2022, it's hard to follow Jesus. And so we can gain things from the church and from the letter that Paul is writing to bring some courage. And so uh, we begin with this, this section in, again, orthodoxy. The, the, um, what we see in Ephesians 1 through 3 is that God and his character has engaged us. He's not left us to ourselves. In his mercy and his grace, he's pursued us and his kindness and his care his affection for humanity has not left us to our own vices, though we deserved that. Instead, by his grace and his mercy, he pursued us. And we see in chapters 1 through 3 this theme of his grace and this theme of his kindness and his theme of his great love and his rich mercy and his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. We see that throughout the letter. We see about his pursuit and his heart to destine us for adoption. We saw about his redemption and his forgiveness and the promised Holy Spirit. We've seen all of these kind of themes throughout the first couple of chapters. And so we enter into chapter 3, in the latter part, and we see that Paul bows his knee. And he prays for the second time in this letter for the church there. And in this, his desire is for them to be more rooted and experience more deeply the love of Christ. And that's where we're going to look at this morning. So Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14. It says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So I got three points for us. The first is this, that Paul's confidence in prayer is founded on God's riches. Paul's confidence in prayer is founded on God's riches. He begins by saying, for this reason. It's the second time in this chapter where Paul has said, for this reason. He said it as he began chapter 3, coming out of chapter 2 and understanding that the Jews and the Gentiles are now dual partakers. They're co-heirs of the promises of God. He says, for this reason, he enters into his own calling to engage the Gentiles. And then at the very end of this chapter, he says, for this reason, yet 
again, in light of the grace of God being extended to all people, in light of how this grace and love has the ability to melt your heart, I want to pray that it would take root in you. He says he bows his knees. It's this posture of humility. You know, we in the West being, you know, kind of coming out of the enlightenment, kind of coming out of a very cerebral kind of approach to life and how we think about things, to posture ourselves physically before God in different ways is very abnormal for us. And frankly, a little bit uncomfortable if you didn't grow up with that. And so he bowed his knee. It's a posture of humility. It's other ways we do that. We can open our hands in worship as if we're receiving a gift from God. It's a, it's a posturing. We can raise our hands in a posture of surrender. It's different ways that we can posture ourselves and expressing to our souls, to our hearts, to ourselves that we are positioning ourselves in this way before God, even if we don't feel it. And so he bowed his knee before his father. I love that it says, before the father. Again, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Throughout both of these prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, Paul continued the theme of what his Lord taught him about prayer. And in both times, he began by approaching God as Father. And here he did it again. You know, Paul indicates the the baseline for his confidence in prayer. I don't know what jazzes you to pray. Uh, There are probably certain things that help you pray, and there are probably certain things that make it difficult for you to pray. But for Paul, the baseline for his confidence in this prayer is not his circumstances. Oftentimes, if we're honest, our circumstances are the things that can kind of drive us to pray. But for Paul, his circumstances were not good. He was in, he was in prison. He was struggling to live in the quarters of where he was uh, was living, you know, he was probably a little bit deflated, if we're honest, probably, you know, and so his circumstances were not an infusing prayer for him, which means that he probably wasn't feeling it, like his feelings were not the thing that were driving him or giving him confidence in prayer, so, uh, you know, he's not, he, uh, his confidence wasn't in his feelings, his confidence wasn't in his circumstances. The baseline for his confidence in this prayer is the character and nature of God. And this, is, this can be so, like, I don't know, one of those types of phrases, Christianese, that can kind of come one ear out the other, but, but it was the according to the riches of his glory. Like, that was the thing that gave him confidence in prayer. God, you are so rich. You don't lack anything. You have abundance in everything. So in, I, in me asking you for something, I'm not depleting you from what you already have. You're rich. And so I can come to you. It doesn't mean you can give me exactly what I want, but I'm gonna come to you knowing that you are rich. You're rich and you're abundant. And so I'm not a nuisance to you. I'm coming to you knowing that you have surplus in everything. We've already heard that he's rich in grace and rich in kindness. He's rich in his glory. And I can come to you with the confidence of who you are, regardless of what I feel and regardless of my circumstances. That was the thing that motivated Paul to pray. According to his riches, that he never runs out, that he's never bankrupt, that he's always living within surplus. And he came to his father from that position, not from his circumstances, not from his feelings. It's this idea of faith-based praying, not feeling-based praying, 
not circumstantial-based praying, but faith-based praying. There's a difference. You know, confidence to approach his father, though, again, he was probably hungry, he was probably uncomfortable, he probably didn't have a good Spotify playlist. You know what I'm saying? He probably didn't have good coffee and a cozy blanket. If he did have a candle lit, it probably wasn't scented. And so he's in this position with none of these things, and yet he had a audacity. I mean, this is an audacious prayer, and his audacity was not based off circumstances. His audacity wasn't based off of feeling. His audacity was based on the fact that God is so rich in his glory, and the environment that we see how he approaches, I'll say it like this, God, according to his riches, he, he says, let them experience the love of Christ, not based off of what I feel, not based off of my circumstances, but in light of who you are, faith-based praying, as we grow in maturity, I hope that we grow in this understanding that prayer is not based off of our circumstances, it's not based off of our feelings, it's based off the fact that we know that God is who he said he was, and said he is, and said he will be, and that's how we approach him in prayer. Paul's confidence in prayer is founded on God's riches. I mean, the second thing within this, this little section that we just read, that the purpose of Paul's prayer is for the church to experientially know the love of Christ to, to know the depth of Christ's love. So his prayer is that they would experientially know the depth of Christ's love. So we have these two prayers in Ephesians 1 and then Ephesians 3, and they, they complement each other. In Ephesians 1, if you remember several weeks ago when we mentioned the prayer in Ephesians 1, the latter half, Paul prays that they would know Christ. He says that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know Christ. And in chapter 3, he prays that they may experience the love of Christ. In one prayer, he prays that there would be a deeper understanding of Christ. And in the other prayer, he's praying that there would be an experiential depth that they would understand. In one, he's praying that they might know the gospel more deeply. And in chapter three, he's praying that they might experience the gospel more deeply. Daryl Johnson, a guy I regularly quote through this series, he says, uh, he does not, Paul does not want the gospel to get stuck in our heads as mere theory. He wants the gospel to be a living reality, so he boldly asks the Father to make it so. Your Christianity is not just about knowing facts. It's about those facts getting into our bones in such a way that we actually live different. And Paul's praying that they would know this. And so the purpose of this prayer, again, is to experientially know the depth of Christ. And so some words that Paul uses that matter to us, he uses strengthen or strengthened uh, a few times in this little prayer. And to be strengthened is to be fortified, to be invigorated. In other words, invigorate them with the power of your love. Fortify them with the power of your love. He talks about their inner being, the core of who we are. God, I don't want it just to be on the outskirts of who they are. The core of their being would be sh so shaped by the depth of the love of Christ that it would actually shape how they approach life. He talks about Christ dwelling in their hearts. Just for clarity, this indwelling has already happened in chapter two. We see in chapter one that the spirit now is an inheritance. In chapter two, we see that uh, there's already an indwelling occurring. And so the question isn't, uh, is Christ dwelling in their hearts or not? 
We can kind of get into those uh, arguments, and that's not really the point here. The Greek for dwell here is home. There'd be a, a home uh, for Christ. You know, we, he may, Christ may dwell as a visitor in their lives, and honestly, maybe in our lives. And Paul's prayer is that he would dwell as a permanent resident. Paul's prayer is that Christ would not just be a guest, but he would be the master of the home. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. His heart, uh, Paul's heart is, God, let your dwelling be all that Christ intended it to be. Let the dwelling of Christ in the church be all that was intended to be. Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Daryl Johnson goes on and kind of speaks to why there needs to be this prayer for dwell and fortification and strength. And he says this, Do you see now why Paul prays for power? It takes power to alter everything around a new person in the home. It takes power to change routines, to change attitudes, to switch from living at the beck and call of the new master. And it takes power to remodel the home. He goes on to say, there is an encouragement to think of our hearts as a house and then to think of all the rooms of our homes and then one by one to welcome Christ into each of the rooms. He says, God, let them be strengthened. Let Christ dwell truly. And where he's not dwelling, let your spirit convict and draw and invite more deeply in our lives. And he talks about being rooted and established in love. This language, there's kind of two ways references. The, the rooted language is botanical. It's a botanical reference, being rooted. So it's, a, it's God, let the roots of your love go so deep into the heart of this community. Be rooted in love. Let them be a well-rooted tree. Rooted. And then he says, establish. It's a architectural reference. So he's praying, let the foundation of your love be so firm in this church that nothing could shake it. Grounded, established, a well-built house. Let it be so. See, love is the soil in which we are growing. Love is the foundation by which we are standing. We say we are gospel-centered because we don't believe that we graduate from the gospel. We want to be forevermore rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. That's who we are and the, the foundation that we stand on as we follow Jesus and live this life. So he says, let the core of who they are be rooted and grounded in your love. Again, he's praying that they would experientially know the depth of Christ's love. Then he says to be strengthened to know this love. Again, I'll repeat it. He says, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's irony there. Let them know something they can't know. He's asking for something more than something cognitive. Let them know something that surpasses just mere information. So he prays this bold, audacious prayer. God, let this church be so rooted and grounded. You know what he's not praying for? they would get that job. I'm not, I'm not saying anything wrong with that or things on the surface that we pray for. I think we've short-circuited prayer to just be like 
pithy, circumstantial things. But man, there is a depth that Paul is inviting us into that's just beyond what we've been invited into when it comes to prayer. Jesus taught us how to pray like this, audacious prayers. Hallowed be your name. Let the kingdom of God that has nothing but beauty and good be here. I mean, that's a pretty audacious prayer. But we've settled for like, God, just pray that they would have a good day. It's like, I'm just fine. But like, there's, there's more. There's more that this prayer is inviting us into. There's depth and beauty. Why? Because of the riches of his glory. Like, that's what he's standing on as he approaches God in prayer. That we had to have, uh, and he enters into that space from that understanding. He says, man, strengthen them together with the saints. Let them understand these things. And he says, he prays that they would comprehend it. Another translation would be to grasp. It's this experiential knowledge that he's praying for. They would understand the breadth, the length, the height and the depth of the love of Jesus. See, there's no thing that can outpace the love of Christ. No sin, no shame, no choice, no past decision, no devil, nothing. It's immense. It's frankly overwhelming. As we peer into it truly, it's overwhelming. You know, in uh, Romans chapter 8, um, Paul also wrote this letter to the church in Rome, and in Romans 8, he has some similar language. I want to see if you can kind of uh, compare the two as I read them. In Romans 8, starting in 31, he says this, What then shall we say to these things? In light of, similar to what Paul said in Ephesians 1, uh, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And then he sidebars and he says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he says, No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says this, For I am, what's that word? I am sure. There's a level of confidence in this statement that we need to listen to. I am sure, I am convinced, there is no doubt in my mind that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul wants that to be so in the fabric of the church that nothing could jostle it. How easily can we potentially be jostled? And Paul's prayer here is our prayer for us. Man, God, let this community, 
be so rooted and grounded in the depth of your love for us. And this, this prayer of fortification and strength, this statement of declaration of confidence that Paul prayed is, is beautiful. I've, I've experienced this, this fortification. I have many more to go. But I, Romans 8, for me, is, as I've kind of prepped for this sermon in particular, I was thinking about Romans 8, and it has a special place in my heart. It might for you as well, but I've mentioned this story a number of times, but um, I only have so many experiences in my life, so you only are going to hear so many stories in my life. I'm not the type that are going to make up stories to make it easy, so we only got so many, and as I get older, I'll have a few more for you, but um, two years in, in 2014, when we planted Sojourn, I've mentioned this story before. I just said that again. I don't need to give that caveat anymore, um, but we, uh, man, it was, it was a grind. It was two years into planting. None of what I thought would happen happened uh, in a lot of ways, at least most of those things. Uh, in some ways, barely making it. Didn't know if that we were going to make it out of the time that we are in. And um, I've told you the story about um, being in this room with a pastor friend of mine. We had a bunch of people on Mother's Day visiting their moms. It was in the evening on a Sunday night. He came in. His core group, which is the phase before you plant a church, was much larger than our church two years in. And uh, so the few people that were there, we came and left. Alex and I talked, uh, felt this sense of embarrassment, and I, I just spiraled. I didn't know what was happening, but I, my emotions began to get out of control. And I didn't know what to do with them. I, I felt things I'd never felt before, dark things that I'd never felt before. I'm a pretty optimistic person, but I did not feel any of that in this season. It was probably at least 18 months for me. I, I felt exposed. I felt like a failure. I felt like I didn't measure up. I felt embarrassed. I felt um, it was dark. It was lonely. It was confusing. I questioned everything about how God had led us and why he led us the way he did and how I thought it was kind of stupid the way he led us at the time, if I'm honest. Uh, we can be honest here. Um, and I remember explicitly feeling drawn to Romans 8. And I, I committed to letting Romans 8 be like a slow drip in my soul. I started seeing a counselor who continued to point me back to Romans 8. Um, when I opened my Bible for that next 18 months, the one chapter I opened to was Romans 8. It just, I needed it. It was like the one bit of oxygen I could find to bring some level of hope and recalibration to my soul. You know, Romans 8 began to help me untangle the mess of my soul. My soul's still a mess, but it's made a little bit of progress and began to reimagine a life of, like, what if this is true? Like, what if the depth of Christ's love, the height of Christ's love, this surety of Christ's love was actually the most stable thing in the universe? And what if everything that I'm trying to pursue or was told to pursue is not the thing that gives me worth? Like, what if this was actually true to know such love that nothing could jostle? What if everything that Jesus said was true? I know it's odd when I'm like, when you're helping lead this small community and you're having as many questions, maybe more, than the people that you're supposed to be leading. Like, that was where I was in this season. But what if this love and this grace were as real as Romans 1 through 3 and Romans 8 were actually saying that they were? And what if I really had nothing to prove? Like, what if we didn't make it as a church? Like, what would that do? Could I be as confident? Like, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's a cool story when you begin to believe this and then things take off. 
But I was at the crossroads. I didn't know what was to come. And what if in that moment we took, a, we took another, we took the left turn instead of the right and all of a sudden things were no more and I'm now working at Home Depot. Like, and that's cool. That would have been great. But, but what if that happens? And everything that I thought was going to be my calling for the rest of my life wasn't my calling. Like in that moment, would I have been rooted and grounded? And that's the invitation that I think that these, this text is giving to us. Like having a level of confidence that regardless of the outcome of our future and the expectations that we have, like what if this thing was so firmly set for us and these roots were so deep that man, whatever brought, came our way, we were sure God loves us, cares for us. He's not gonna leave us as orphans. It began to bring healing to me. It began to bring security to me. Not security that finances were gonna work out, I'm talking deeper than that. Like a level of confidence that finances can't provide. A level of stability that Christ offers to us in the gospel. See, Paul is praying for the church to experientially know the depth of the love of Jesus. And again, to be clear, he isn't just wanting this to be informative. He doesn't want this to be cognitive only. You hear his heart. This is something he wants them not just to know, but to know. We see it here, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Friends, we need to let, we are invited to let our guard down with the gospel. We are invited to let our guard down and actually experience this kind of love. We're invited to not be the men that we were told to be kind of masculine, gonna just put ourselves forward, we're not gonna be emotive, we're just, all these things that we were taught growing up, we have an opportunity to allow the depth of the love of Jesus to form us in a way that's profound and transformative. And this gospel, it softens us in a way that nothing else can. Jesus can be trusted. He ain't gonna give you what you want. He will give you everything you need. And it's different. You think that you need things you don't need. And you think you should have things you don't really need to have. And he invites you to a depth of love and care and support that nothing else in this world can provide. Dare to believe that this depth of love is actually true. See, he knows we face circumstances that keep us from this. So Paul prays that they would be strengthened to grasp this. So some of us, experience things as a child that haunt us and keep us from this love. Some of us have tapes in our minds speaking to how unworthy we are, if we're honest. Unworthy to receive any love, much less the love that's being communicated here. Some of us have done things that we cannot forgive ourselves for, which keep us from this depth of expression of love. Some of us are experiencing circumstances in real time that put God's love into question. And Paul's just saying, would you melt their hearts? Melt their hearts to know it in such a deep way, melt their hearts to love it. May be able to comprehend, to grasp, to understand the depths of this love. There's so much more here. These little, these just few sentences are just so packed with meaning. He says, would you be, would you fill them with the fullness of God? I mean, we could spend weeks just talking about that, uh, and we have run out of time, but he prays for that, and that we would be filled, continue to be filled in, in the following chapters. He's going to talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
This idea of ongoing being filled, not one and done, but an ongoing being filled with the Spirit. Again, the second point, which is the longest of the three. I got another one, uh, but the second of three. Let the church experientially know the love of Jesus. And let it be so even here. Last two verses, he says this. Now to him who is able, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm gonna sidebar and then I'm gonna get to this point. Some of us numb ourselves to prevent us from actually having these kind of conversations with God. Some of us spend years and years and years busying ourselves. These devices make it so much worse for us. We don't know how to be silent before God and just allow things like this to wash us. And I would invite you to consider even practices like silence and solitude to actually approach God with nothing more than these few verses. I would invite you to Romans 8, I would invite you to Ephesians 3 and just allow these things to begin to uncork something inside of you that would draw you even more closely to God. I just wanted to mention that numbing hindrance that can keep us from these types of realities. Third point, Paul gives thanks for the security of God's ability Again, this is meaty here, but it's ultimately a doxology. It's an expression of praise as he closes this chapter, this section, as he enters into the next one coming up. But the point here is that he's able. He's massively able. God is massively able. He is able to do. He's able to do what we ask. He's able to do what we think. He's able to do all that we ask or think. Able to do beyond all that we ask or think able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's what Paul says. There's no limit. There's no limit to the security that we have in God's ability. The one who has done beyond all that we could ask, again, Ephesians 1, chose us, destined us for adoption, redeemed us, forgave us, gave us the Holy Spirit. While we are dead in our sins, he rescued us because of his rich grace. He's done all of these things. The one who can do beyond all that we can ask. You know, this is this section in 2021, this last few verses, this is the headquarters of our faith. Not to him who's able. Like, our, again, our faith and prayer is not predicated upon our circumstances, not predicated upon our feelings, but this, the one who is able to do far more. Our Father in heaven, the one who is able to do far more than we can ask or think. You know, amidst the temptations and struggles of the church living in the Ephesians climate, as they're pulled and tempted to settle for all kinds of things, Paul yearned for them to be anchored, yearned for them to be rooted and grounded. I mean, what does it look like? What does it do to someone who lives and the experiential understanding of God's riches, rooted in God's love, and secure in God's ability. And it, it sets our hearts free. That nothing in this world needs to give us what we say it needs to give us. There's a level of freedom that comes there. You know, as one of the pastors here, I, I just want to say that I and we so deeply want this to be grounded in us, rooted within us. I pray towards this end, we preach towards this end, yearn for our hearts to be rooted and grounded. Man, for some of you, the best next step for you is to call a counselor. 
for real. Maybe you don't know how to get inside of yourself. There's like lock and lock and lock and chain and lock. And you're like, I don't even know. I don't even know how to get from these 18 inches, man. Like, cool. Man, some of you, the best thing that you could do is just spend some time with someone to kind of help you through that. For others of you, some of you, the best thing you could do is marinate in what we've been looking at the last several weeks, specifically Ephesians 3. And God, if it's true, would you, would you let this be my reality let me know the depth of your love. And I, I, we're all about our second value is to be contemplative, to slow down. And I want to invite you to slow down and allow Ephesians 3 to wash you. This is not a microwave thing. It's not a quick in and out thing. It's a slow, it's a long journey and there's beauty in the slowness and seeing God meet us in those moments. I invite us to this, that we would know, not just know, but we would know the depth of God's love. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're, for honest, man, we want to run so hard from this. We just, what we want to do is just prove ourselves we really don't want to know the depth of your grace, and yet we long to know the depth of your grace and love. And Lord, where there's walls, and I get it, and I've stuffed my emotions for far too long, Lord, help us. Help us. Let there just be a little light of hope that we would desire and want to experience the kind of love that you offer for us. Thank you that you so loved the world. You gave your son the eternal, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, glorious, majestic, never-changing creator took on our form. Lived a life we couldn't live to rescue us. give you thanks. Let's take communion together. If you want to grab these baskets. And the baskets are elements. These are for all who want to follow Jesus. All who are following Jesus. Open them, but don't take them just yet. Let's take it together in just a second. Friends, this little, this little moment, this sacred moment is a reminder that we proclaim to ourselves, to everything around us, that we are not defined by anything but the love of Jesus, that Christ demonstrated his love for us. He displayed his love that while we are sinners, he died. And so we take this wafer and we remember that his body was broken. We take the juice and we remember that his blood was shed. This is what defines you and nothing else. The body of Jesus broken for you and the blood of Jesus shed. Let's partake together. <clears throat>